following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Our scripture reading this morning is in Isaiah 23. Give me a moment to turn there. Isaiah and the 23rd chapter. Isaiah 23, the burden against Tyre. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for it is laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor for the land of Cyprus. Sorry, from the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whom those who cross the sea have filled, and on great waters the grain of Shihor, the harvest of the river is her revenue, and she is a marketplace for the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon. For the sea has spoken, the strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children, neither do I rear young men nor bring up virgins. When the report reaches Egypt, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your joyous city, whose antiquity is from ancient days, whose feet carried her far off to dwell? Who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning city, whose merchants are princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth? The Lord of hosts has purposed it to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Overflow through your land like the river, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea, he shook the kingdoms. The Lord has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its strongholds. And he said, You will rejoice no more, O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. There also you will have no rest. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, this people which was not, Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers, they raised up its palaces and brought it to ruin. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. Now it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten 70 years, according to the days of one king. At the end of 70 years it will happen to Tyre, as in the song of the harlot. Take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melody, sing many songs, that you may be remembered. And it shall be at the end of 70 years that the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her hire and commit fornication with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. Her grain and her pay will be set apart for the Lord. It will not be treasured nor laid up, for her gain will be for those who dwell before the Lord to eat sufficiently and for fine clothing. Evidently, God is promising there to turn the fortunes of that wicked kingdom and to uh, turn its benefits over to the people of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, please. I wonder if I could ask, uh, maybe Naomi, could I ask you for the kindness of a little drink of water? <laughs> Thank you. Yes, amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Paul's going to continue to deal with the problem of the misuse of spiritual gifts in the church. They had gift problems there, and uh, they are in need of 
further explanation. He's already spent chapter 12, chapter 13, and now chapter 14. By the length of material, we know that there was a serious issue there. He's, he's dealt with, in chapter 13, the way of love as the proper way to exercise our spiritual gifts. Love is that outward uh, interest, compassion, empathy, sympathy for others, the affection, the concern for them, which drives us to act on their behalf for their good. And Paul is trying to teach these folks that you're supposed to minister in the church with that outward look. As I prayed earlier, not as a consumer, but as a producer of, uh, of the grace of God, if you will. God produces it in us, but we pass it on to other people. So the way of love, that's the more excellent way of chapter 12 and verse 31 that he wants them to have. See, they were focused on these gifts, these spiritual abilities that they had been given, and they were saying, well, I don't have the one I want, you know, woe is me, or, uh, you know, look at what I have. I'm so wonderful and great. The inferiority side of it, the superiority side of it, and uh, they just were not thinking about these things properly at all. Um, and so the two ideas that we've been addressing for the last few weeks are, are re, re, uh, kind of spoken, restated in verse 1 of chapter 14. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. So both chapter 13 and chapter 12 kind of summarized after a fashion, in those first words of chapter 14. Don't you love it when somebody's speaking and they tell you what they're talking about and then they explain it and then they remind you what they are talking about, right, brother? Yeah, so you do that and uh, it, it's helpful. So Paul is doing that here. He's saying, look, this, here's where we've been, and now I'm going to move on to something uh, a little bit different. Now, just a reminder to you, Remember that when you became a Christian, God gave you not only um, regeneration, He gave you certain spiritual gifts. Thank you, dear. And those spiritual gifts uh, come along with your connection to the church, your connection to the Lord Jesus Christ, your forgiveness. Remember, the Lord. In Micah chapter 7, promise that wonderful forgiveness that we've got. All of those things we have in Christ, but you have also certain spiritual abilities that you've been given or have been sanctified that is set apart for God's use in your life. Those abilities, one or more of them, are intended by God to advance His work inside and outside of the church. Now, let me just illustrate again with myself. I don't want to make myself the focus of illustrations, but I didn't know, little did I know, that when God saved me, he planned for me to preach the word back uh, 35 years ago or so now, when I was born again. And, you know, the whole notion of, of doing this kind of thing was a crazed kind of idea to me, you know. But God had prepared and began to develop and train and uh, unfold that gift in my life so that I might be used of him, I trust, for the edification of the church. Every believer has some such divinely given ability, such as serving, 
to uh, the ability to administer, to lead, to teach the Bible, a desire or capacity to be generous with one's time and money, uh, the skill of shepherding souls, of leading a church as a pastor. Some are, are gifted with the ability to explain the gospel to people uh, who don't know it, uh, you know, others to uh, bring, kind of come alongside a new believer and encourage them in the faith. These are all spiritual abilities that God has given to people in the church, and they should be used as well as we can use them to honor Him. Such gifts are necessary because the work of the church is not a natural work. Let me say it a different way. The work of the church is a supernatural work. I appreciate how our brother and missionary Dave Kurowicki says that he delights to do the work that he's doing in sharing the gospel with children, but it's a daunting task because God is using him to do something that is impossible. It is impossible for somebody to be born again. But with God, what about those impossible things? All things are actually possible because God works in a supernatural way. But you know, here we are in the church, a lighthouse to the community of people who don't want to see the light, who don't appreciate the things of God, who think that the things that we say are hateful things. The morality that we preach is, is they think, debased, when actually they are the ones who hold to the debased morality. They are on a foundation over here which is totally divorced from the biblical foundation upon which we stand, and we're doing an impossible task to try to win them from over there to over here. How are you going to do that impossible task without spiritual gifts, without divine enablement from heaven to do this? That's why God has given these things to the church. You mu we must have them, and they must be exercised. Otherwise, we will not be able to carry out the work that God has, been, has given to us. Now, the church there in Corinth had been focused on uh, using the gifts in a wrong way, pursuing spiritual gifts with the wrong desire. Remember, they wanted to aggrandize themselves. They wanted to be great in the sight of others. Uh, they, we already mentioned about how some thought they needed better gifts. Others thought they had the best gifts and were superior to the other people. They were boasting, not recognizing the interconnected nature of the body. And, and these were some of the problems there at, at Corinth. The emphasis of love went a long way in the church to correct those issues. If you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to act like they were acting in Corinth. So it is for us as well. You know, when you, have, you see a church that's got some kind of difficulty in it, two people that have some kind of difficulty between them, you have to ask yourself this question. Is there Christian love there or is there selfishness there? Where do wars and fights come from among you? your selfish pleasures that war in your members. James, James diagnoses it for us right off the bat. There's no question. Uh, the, the kind of wisdom that produces a strife and affliction from one person to another or in the midst of a church doesn't come from above. It comes from beneath. It comes from the devil. It comes from sin, not from God. 
So Paul is trying to correct all of this in the church, and he uh, encourages the church to use their spiritual gifts. He encourages them especially to seek after love. In fact, I think Paul would agree with this proposition based on what he said. I encourage you to pursue love with all the vigor and even more of the vigor that you pursue spiritual gifts with. Pursue love. And let God do the giving of the gifts and worrying about all of that. Don't worry about aggrandizing yourself and being selfish, but pursue love and an other's orientation. So pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Now remember, just let me emphasize this again. When you read that, uh, verse 31 of chapter 12, earnestly desire the best gifts, remember that I argued that this is a corporate desire. If, for instance, our church lacks in the area of evangelism and we don't have people who are burdened and exercising themselves toward evangelism, then we as a church could seek the face of God and say, God, would you please raise up someone from our midst or send someone in who can fill this little gap that we believe that we have in the church in terms of personal evangelism, or if we need somebody to do some other service, some other thing in the church, ask God for that. This is not a request that, okay, Lord, I can, I can do X, but I'd like to speak in tongues myself personally. Could you give me that gift? No, that's not it. The desire is for the church as a whole. Lord, help our church to reach the people of Ann Arbor, to teach the people that we have within these four walls, to bring them along in the things of God, to carry out the Great Commission successfully. That's what we want. We want to honor God by faithfully obeying His Word. And, Lord, we're praying that You'd help us to do that. Any way in which, Lord, You see that we lack, that we're not honoring You, we're not faithfully obeying Your Word, we're not carrying out the Great Commission, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, we're not praying, whatever way it is, if there's any way in that whole realm of stuff that we're not behaving like we should, please help us. And if we need somebody with a spiritual gift, please raise that person up or send them to us to be able to help us. That's what I think the desire for spiritual gifts is. So desire them, but pursue love. And then he gives a special emphasis in the second half of verse 1 on this gift called prophecy. He says, especially that you may prophesy. So prophecy is the noun. It's the thing that is is said, the content. And to prophesy there with the S, that's the verb form of it. So it gets kind of confusing when you try to think about how to spell it. Is it a C or is it an S? uh, But that's the way it is. The gift of prophecy is singled out among all the gifts here. And why is that? Well, it goes back to the nature of prophecy itself. Uh, Let me just read the rest of the section here so we get the context. So he says, Pursue love, verse 1, and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy, verse 2, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies 
the church. You see the contrast that's going on? Tongue, prophesy, tongue, prophesy. Verse 5, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So remember before we stated there are two flavors of prophecy. The one flavor is the miraculous flavor, and that's what people mainly focus on when they read 1 Corinthians. But the other flavor is what I call the -the run-of-the-mill kind of prophecy. That is the proclamation of the truth of God's word. That's what I'm doing right now, okay? The run of the mill kind, the basic kind that is just repeating what has already been given to us. We proclaim the word that has been once delivered to the saints. We don't create new words from God. In that day, imagine again, you have a church, no New Testament, just the Old Testament. You have maybe a couple books of the New Testament. How are you supposed to conduct yourself? Well, during that age, God gave certain ones the ability to prophesy so that they could guide the church from God, something like what the priests did in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel. Okay? So that was current then. But once the Bible was completed, we made this big case last time in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, that you know tongues, prophecies, knowledge would pass away, would cease. Once the Bible came in, no more need for that. We've passed from the infantile stage of the church to what? The adult stage. God expects us to behave as adults, not as children in the church. So today, we don't have the gift of the miraculous kind of flavor or variation of prophecy, but we have what we can say is a prophecy kind of thing by proclamation. Now, I don't use that word. I don't say, you know, I'm the prophet. I'm not a prophet. Uh, I'm a preacher. I'm a teacher of the Bible, really, a pastor. And so, you know, all teachers and evangelists are today. But Paul is elevating this gift, both the miraculous form for them and also the -the run-of-the-mill form for them and for us. Why is he doing that? The nature of the gift is the reason why, because person with this ability to proclaim the truth is speaking to the mind and heart of the audience so that they can first understand the principles that are given and then do something about it. That is what expositional preaching is, in fact. An exposition of a text is an explanation, an application, so that you can, you the audience, I I do the explaining and the applying the explanation of it, so that you do the understanding and you do the actual applying. You actually follow it, okay? So two parts to exposition, to teach it and to apply it, and you understand it and obey it. And so that's what proclamation does of God's Word, whether it's the gospel or some you know, more, you could say, technical doctrinal matter or something like that. Uh, but you, you do that to learn the Word of God and apply it. So, for example... If I teach you from 1 Peter, and I'll just go there, just uh, two words from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse um, 17. It says, uh, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So if I tell you that the Bible says to you as a Christian, every Christian, 
you need to fear God, then I should explain what it means to fear God, and I should give you maybe an example or help you examine to see if you are fearing God. So let me just do that for one minute. What does it mean to fear God? Well, some have said it means to respect God, to reverence Him, and that's true, but I think it's more than that. Because when you stand before God, it's going to be more than a mere fear, a feeling of reverence for him. Uh, we, we fear God, Paul says, and thus we make it our aim to persuade men. We know we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We know that God is displeased with sin. We know that God has asked us to live for him. And if we don't do that, we're going to face a consequence and judgment. That instills in us more than merely a reverence. We recognize that God is infinite, we are finite. God is holy, we are sinners. God is great, we are not. And we, as every prophet did when they saw a manifestation of God, or even an angel for that matter, they just nearly died from fear and that would, so it's not just reverence. But anyway, that's what it is. Now, let me give you a, let me give you a, a way to, to think, do you fear God? If God says to you in Acts chapter 17 that he commands all people everywhere to repent of their sin, that is, turn away from sin. Look, you know you're a sinner. You just know it, right? You know, you've thought bad things, you've said bad things, you've done bad things, you've done things that displease God, you've hurt other people, you've sinned against God, you've sinned against yourself, you've sinned against your spouse, you've sinned against your parents, you've sinned against your children, you know all that, okay? Your conscience tells you. You haven't honored God as you should, you've used His name in vain, you've thought evil thoughts, you've been angry at people, you've hated people, all that stuff. The Bible says, turn away from sin. If you fear God, you will, in fact, do that. If you don't turn away from sin, if you don't turn away from sin, then I can tell you for sure you do not fear God, but you will. Okay? So that's one manifestation of the fear of God. We could say another manifestation is just generally, do you obey God in any, you you know a command of God, you know what he wants you to do, and you don't do it? then I can tell you right now there's no check mark next to fear God in your life. Okay? So that's what we're talking about. We're proclaiming the truth, helping you to, to apply the truth. In this case, see if, it, if you are exercising the, the virtue or the character trait that you're supposed to be exercising. So that's prophecy. That's why it's so powerful. It does something in us. God has designed it that way. The gift of tongues, on the other hand, which is what, again? It's not the gift, it's, it's not the, the use of ecstatic gibberish that came from the mystery cults to, you know, under the influence of, uh, of alcohol or drugs to try to induce a, a stupor and a, an ecstatic feeling of being elevated to the divine. That's not what tongues is, okay? Tongues is the immediate ability to understand and speak a foreign language, okay? It's a gift that 1 Corinthians 14 is going to say much more about as we go on, and I won't say that now, but it was a gift of the immediate ability in a foreign language. It cannot accomplish the same thing as plain English proclamation of the word. Suppose a speaker comes in 
perhaps somebody I know from Bibles International. And they come in, and I ask them to deliver the message this morning. And they start delivering the message, and you're wondering, am I hearing that right? First few syllables, and then after a few more syllables, you realize they're not speaking my language. And uh, I get up and I say, well, that was uh, the message of the gospel in the Saracaba language group. And you say, well, that didn't do, do me much good. Uh, no one understands him. He speaks mysteries. What he says is unknown and effectively unknowable because it's locked into another language. So it's it's like if he, did, if he did that for 45 minutes, you would say, Pastor, did you get that? And I would say, no, I didn't get that because <laughs> I don't know that language. Um, yeah, it would be useless. It would be ineffective. It would have no value. I mean, not only is it not just a little less in value than plain proclamation, it's like zero. Proclamation of the word where you can understand, say, what the fear of God is and how do you check up on yourself to see if you have it? That's a much different ballgame. So the gift of prophecy, teaching and preaching in our, uh, in our context and situation, is using the common language of the people to proclaim the truth of God. And according to verse 3, look at that verse 3, please. It says, he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort. Three things. Okay, so... When we come to the pulpit, we are able to do one of these three things, or perhaps two of them or all three of them. We are edifying, we are exhorting, and we are comforting. Okay? So when we edify, what does that mean? If we edify an edifice, that means we build a building. If we edify a person, it means we build that person up. We strengthen them spiritually. We fortify them emotionally or in some other department of their life, we help them to feel better about something that's going on. We, we build them up. We don't tear them down. How many times have we used our speech to tear someone down, to cut out the foundation from underneath them, to dishearten them and to build them down instead of building them up? That's edification. Pro- proclaiming the Word of God results in edification. I don't know if you've experienced this, but how many times have you heard a message? And and for me, this is a, how can I say? Maybe this is not more rare. For me to come to a church and sit in a pew like you and to hear a message is quite rare in my life because I spend most of the time on the other side of the pew, or the pulpit, than, than, than your seat. But I will listen to preaching on the radio or internet, and I'm telling you, it just encourages your heart, doesn't it? It just strengthens you. It, it, it edifies you and builds you up. And you need that constantly. I mean, how much the world is just picking at, tearing, cutting, undercutting your faith, trying to work at you, work on you, trying to push your buttons, you know, mess you up. That's what you get 24-7. Well, minus your sleep, hopefully. And minus, you know, minus the time that you're in church. But that's what's happening. Even in school, you know, as innocent as that should be, teaching young minds false doctrines like evolution and 
and uh, social justice and these sorts of things today. That's all they can talk about today, it seems like. We're to edify one another. That's what our speech is to, is to be able to do, and that's what we need when we hear a message of God's Word. Secondly, proclamation of the truth brings exhortation. The Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is, it's God-breathed and it's profitable for what? Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So it teaches you what is true. It teaches you where you're wrong. It teaches you how to get right. And it teaches you how to stay that way, instructing you in righteousness. See, the Bible is useful for reproof. Here, exhortation. It means to make a strong request to someone, to appeal to them, to push them into a course of action, to tell them what to do. Can you imagine if you were the last person that a dying person saw? I mean, they were, they were within hours of their passing, and you had the last opportunity to preach to them the gospel. Would you exhort them to believe? Because you know that in a few hours, when they draw their last breath, their soul is going to go somewhere. You need to exhort them. You need to beg them. As Paul, we beseech you to be reconciled to God, or else your eternity is going to be a disaster. Exhort somebody. You know, young man. You cannot continue to go down that route. You have to turn back before you go over the cliff or over the falls. You're never going to make it. You exhort someone. You request them. You urge them. You push them into a course of action. You tell them what they need to do. You pastors are always telling people what to do. Yeah, that's true. As long as I'm teaching the Bible what it says what you're to do, then that's my job. That's what we're supposed to do. And, of course, you know, people don't like that. They get all defensive. And hopefully, you know, the better part of wisdom will come upon them and they'll think about what you've said and come around eventually. Like the Lord said in the, in the little parable, if you will, about the, the Pharisee and the, and the prostitute, you know, Uh, the tax collectors enter into the kingdom before you do, you know, like, who who did the will of the father? The young man, dad said, you know, go in the field and do this. And he said, no, I won't. But then a few minutes later, he realized, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I'm going and I'm going to do what my dad said to do. Or the the Pharisee who says, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm your man. I'm right on Johnny on the spot. And then he doesn't do it. No, to to exhort, to tell somebody what to do, and then hopefully they do it. And then there's another whole class of utility for proclamation, and that is to comfort. I mean, how many times have you come into a situation, well, in a church service, and you're kind of downcast? You're a little downhearted. Something's happening in your family or your life or your health or whatever, You need a word of encouragement. You need a word like we gave in Micah chapter 7 this morning to remind yourself that God casts our sins as far as the east is from the west into the depths of the deepest ocean. 
when you think, man, I, I really blew it this week. I have not lived for God. You know what? Turn from your sin and God will be merciful and he will pardon you and he will welcome you into that perfect harmony with him again. That's a comforting word. Somebody who's depressed or down or grieving, perhaps they're facing some need in their life. The proclamation of the word can help them to do what Psalm 121 says. Ask the question, where does my help come from? Your help comes from the Lord. It comes from God. And so the person who prophesies, who proclaims, who preaches, who teaches the Bible, speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort. Build up, correct where there's needed correction, and comfort where somebody is is down and depressed. Uh, Sometimes when we uh, think as preachers of our role when there's a funeral, we remind ourselves that we are to do two things, to comfort those who are grieving and to challenge or exhort those who are lost, to use the time profitably to go to the house of mourning is better than to go to the house of feasting. Why? Because the end of all men is there in the house of mourning in the, in the funeral parlor, and that can help us to be exhorted, but also we need to be comforted because we've lost a loved one. Those of us who are believers, uh, the Bible says, comfort one another with these words. You know, know that your loved one is not lost, that they will not be left behind at the rapture. We don't sorrow as those who have no hope. We will, we will be with them once again so we can comfort one another with those words. We should ask ourselves, whether we're in vocational ministry like I am or Jansen and Kaylee or my wife or, or whether not, we're not, do our words accomplish these three things? Did what I say edify, exhort, or comfort? Or did it tear down, discourage, mislead, discomfort, destroy, ask ourselves that question. Man, too many times our words don't edify, don't comfort, and don't exhort in a good way. In the home, in the church, in school, in the workplace, in our personal lives. Let me go now to verses 4 and 5 and deal with the matter of understanding. We're going to touch on this this week and then also next week. Um, Where I'm getting this from is really the whole complex of the verses here. If you look in verse 2 again, it says, if a man speaks in a tongue, no one understands him, but he speaks mysteries. But this edification and exhortation and comfort assume a level of understanding. And I'm just going to kind of roll up everything under the heading of edification. Without comprehension, there can be no edification. Uh, One of my very esteemed theology teachers said it this way. Uh, I'm I'm making a variation on a statement, but edification never bypasses the brain. Edification never bypasses the mind. There are those, however, out there who will say, well, we use 
music to touch the emotions, regardless of the understanding of the words or doctrine of the song, that can bring edification. And I'm making a case against that this morning. You must have understanding to have edification. You cannot have, you can have an emotional uplift. Music can do that to you, but it cannot teach you doctrine. It cannot cause you to have understanding. You must have clear explanation, clear words, clear expressions of biblical truth. Of course, that can occur in the words of songs, but we don't bypass the mind. So how do we, how do we work on, on creating understanding? You know, without comprehension, each audience member is making up their own understanding in their own mind. Well, I don't get exactly what pastor's saying, but I think it means this. Yeah, maybe you're correct, maybe you're not correct, unfortunately. But you can't have true edification if there's ignorance or mere personal opinion. You're not going to have real building up if it's just, uh, you know, so many words that go into your ears and, you know, kind of over the top of your brain and you don't understand them. So what we try to do is we try to speak clearly. Now I'm, speak, I'm going to talk about understanding from the side of the speaker now. And then I will talk about understanding from the side of the hearer. So from this side of the pulpit, we want to speak clearly. We want to speak with clear diction and content. We must be able to articulate our words with enough clarity and volume so that people can understand what we're saying. We cannot speak too fast or distractingly slow. This is all application of this passage that I'm bringing to you. I cannot have too thick of an accent, and certainly I can't speak in a, in a you know, foreign language. That, that won't convey understanding. Furthermore, I have to be able to grasp the content and communicate it in an orderly fashion so that it can be understood. I must have the ability, any teacher must have the ability to put together a string of messages, not just one message, but a string of messages, a whole series of them to, that are substantial and not repetitive. I can't come here every day, every Sunday, and give you, you know, the 25 variations on the theme of John 3.16. That doesn't cut it, okay? That's not true church. That might be evangelism, 101, but that's not what God has called us to do in proclaiming the truth of God. I should be able to state the truth. I should be able to justify the truth, should be able to illustrate the truth, should be able to explain it, apply it, um, prove it, argue for it, deal with objections about it, reason through it. I should be able to help you apply what is being taught in the message. And on a very basic level, uh, the speaker to be understood, should be amplified clearly. I mentioned earlier we're having some difficulty with the sound system with regard to the live stream. We're zeroing in on the culprit, and hopefully we'll work on that soon, fix that. But uh, whatever setting in which we find ourselves situated, we have to make sure that we can hear the word. Um, that, that would include intelligible sound amplification. It might include hearing assistance for those who are growing deaf. It might include sign language for those that cannot hear at all. It should include an adequate reproduction of the sound and picture on a video, if that's what you have, for 
those who are at a distance. Now, in ancient times, they didn't have to concern themselves with this technology, uh, electronic technology, but we think of a man like Charles Spurgeon, who 100 years ago, or actually more now, that's what I used to say back 20 years ago, but now it's 120 years ago now, okay? So he would preach to thousands of people. He had to have the vocal capacity to do that. And they, they were really, I mean, it was, it was really not safe for COVID back then. I mean, they were packed into that house in the Metropolitan Tabernacle once that was built. But it was kind of ideal for the, for the situation. That was the technology they had to use to make sure that he could be amplified and understood by the audience. In ancient times, they did similar things to not only use their voice to amplify their words, but also they used natural amphitheaters. Uh, Jesus went out onto the water and spoke so he could speak to an audience on on the wide shore and the voice would carry over the water to the people. He used those techniques to be able to be understood if there's no understanding, it's useless, okay? Now, I'm not saying if you don't understand everything that I've said today or in my past messages that you should just give up and stop going to church. That's not the idea at all. The idea is ask a question. Get, get to that point of understanding. Move, move up into that, into that realm. And that will help me because it will let me know where I need to be more clear and it'll help you because you'll get more clear on, on those kinds of things. So the speaker must have all of that to be understood. But then the hearer, what about the matter of understanding in the hearer, in the person in the audience? Well, we'd have to go back to earlier where we were in 1 Corinthians to touch on that. And it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to this matter, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Not only he does not, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says he cannot do so because he does not know Christ yet. So, yes, as we've said, you can understand certain facts. I mean, Jesus died on a cross, right? Clear. Now, what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you? Do you understand the meaning of that? Do you understand the cosmic eternal significance of that fact? Or is it just like Christians believe that Jesus died on a cross? No, that's not at all. The monotone understanding is not really understanding. The understanding is you understand that he died for sinners such as yourself. In my place condemned He stood. He bore the weight of my sins in his body on the tree. He did that so that if I believe in him, he would wash away my sins and bring me into heaven, into his heavenly kingdom for eternal fellowship with him, no longer separated from God. That's what it means that Jesus died on the cross. It's not the monotone. It's the rich multi-level, variegated tone of understanding of the colors of the the cross, and you understand all that that means. The natural man does not get that. They look at that and they say, that's foolishness. Why would somebody dying be somebody I want to believe in? 
Well, just got to remember, he, he also rose from the dead. That's why. Yeah, that's why. And so to understand the first level or first kind of hurdle you've got to overcome is you've got to be in the crowd of those who can understand. You've got to be not a natural man, but a spiritual person. You have to be a saved person. Otherwise, you won't be able to truly understand the proclamation of God's word. So there is a prerequisite for understanding God's word, and that is salvation. I remember somebody saying this. I believed I was a Christian, but I simply could not overcome sin in my life. You know what that meant? That meant they were not yet a true Christian. They simply could not. I mean, I'm not just talking about one day. You know, they, they were years in this state that they could not overcome sin. If you say to me similarly, Pastor, I just cannot understand the Bible. I've been a Christian since I was a child, but I cannot understand the Bible. I, and, I, and if I say I gave you a quiz or something, you know, and said, do you understand this and this and this? And, and just, no, I don't get that. Then I would say to you, well, your first problem is you misunderstood about becoming a Christian. You didn't. And that's okay. We'll, we can fix that right now. Turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will find the Bible will open up to you like, like I mean, when you're, when you're unsaved, the Bible looks like this. I mean, it says, you know, Holy Bible, and it's got a bunch of words in there. It's like, ooh, I don't quite get that. But when you get saved, you open it up, and it starts to pop. Woo, it's real, amazing, and you can understand it. So you have to be saved because otherwise your mind is darkened. Your understanding is futile. You're, you're, you're in a spiritual state of misunderstanding. Not only So when you get saved, not only do you have a newfound ability to understand God's Word, you have a newfound desire to understand God's Word. Like, yeah, I was just going to say that, brother. You know, stop jumping ahead of me. I mean, 1 Peter says, like newborn babies desire the sincere milk of the Word. That is what we want. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, you receive the word of God as it is in truth, the word of God, not the word of men. It's, you know, when you hear this, when you hear you know, some word that I'm speaking from this, and you say, boy, that's, you know, that's awfully nice. That's, that's great ideas pastor has. Where did he come up with all that stuff? That's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is saying, that is God's word that he just read to us and he's trying to explain to us and I'm trying to, I want to believe that and I want to have that in, in my life. That's a, it's a totally different way of looking at things. It's not the word of men. It's the word of God that we're talking about. So when you become a Christian, God becomes your teacher. The Bible becomes your textbook. The church becomes your schoolhouse. And your word, the word of God sits before you in your study or in your, on your couch or in your quiet place in your home, and that also becomes your place of learning and education, a place of great desire. The hearer has to be committed to learn the Word of God. He has to be committed to learn about God. He has to be first saved. And then, critical in the life of the hearer, the understander of God's Word, is this, that he has to be living a life 
of holiness. Holiness is crucial to right understanding. You have to be living a holy life in order to be able to grasp truly God's word. If you're living a carnal lifestyle, living in sin, you're not even going to be looking at God's word. I know that just by experience. If you are, you're going to be convicted right straight away and you're going to want to get out of your messy situation that you're in. What will happen if you're in sin, should happen, is that you will hear God's word You'll be convicted about it. You'll respond to it. You'll confess and repent and be brought into that measure of holiness whereby then you can understand the the word of God in your life. But listen, if you're hiding sin, you're going to be spinning your wheels trying to make progress. What you've got to do is you've got to let that chain go to that sin and then you'll be able to make progress and you won't be spinning your wheels in the ice and mud. You'll be moving forward. Let that sin go. In other words, cut it off. Get rid of it. Lay aside the weight that so easily entangles us, that sin that so easily entangles us, as Hebrews says. And then you'll be able to understand God's Word. So there's a two, it's a two-way thing here. The speaker has to be understandable, and the hearer has to be able to understand the Word. And those two together make a powerful combination where you're able to be edified, exhorted, and comforted. Now, we finally then close with verses 4 and 5, where we look at the prophecy and tongues gifts compared head-to-head. It says, verse 4, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. Tongue speaking, he says, results in self-edification. Now, when, when I read that, I put edification in air quotes, you know, Edification of myself is not really what we're talking about here. You build yourself up, yeah, it may be more like you puff yourself up. You look good to other people, but the reality is you're not building up the church. Contrast that with the one who prophesies. It says he edifies the church. Always when you're using your gift, ask, where does the benefit go? It's kind of like the reverse when when you... are looking for kind of corruption or something, you say, follow the money, you know, follow where the money goes. With spiritual gifts, ask yourself this question, where does the benefit move towards? Does it move toward me, the exerciser of the gift, or does it move outward toward others? You see that? Follow the gift, not the money. Follow the gift. Follow the benefit of the gift. Follow the edification of the gift. In Corinth, it was, I'm going to build myself up. The benefit's coming this way. In uh, the exercise of prophecy, the benefit is going outward. The benefit flows outward instead of inward. That's what service is. This is a major point of what we're getting at here. Church is not about how I can be built up, first of all. It's about how I can build others up. How can I build others up? And then you know what will happen? Naturally, the more you give, the more you will just naturally receive. God will see to it. You're not looking for it. You're not trying to benefit yourself. You're benefiting others. God will naturally will cause you to naturally grow in grace as well. So Paul says, look, yeah, fine. It would be all really nice if you spoke with tongues, everybody. But far better if everybody was a teacher of the word because then it would edify the church. Now, there's one exception to that, and that is at the end, verse 5, unless 
He interprets. So what is a tongue which is interpreted? It's basically a proclamation like prophecy, which didn't need interpretation in the first place. But in Corinth, they had this problem, as we'll see later in chapter 14. They were babbling on in tongues with no interpreter, useless. No understanding was found there. We're almost done. Um, now, he says, it would be wonderful if you all, all were teachers. Because he who prophesies or teaches or proclaims the truth is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Now, that might sound kind of um, discriminatory, I guess, at first. But remember, we, we made the argument last time, because everybody has the gifts given by God, it's not the different people that are being compared. It's the gift and the result of the gift that is being compared. So the person, it sounds like he's saying the person is greater, but really what he means is the one who's prophesying is providing greater edification. He's not saying that somebody with a lesser gift, we say, is a, is a lesser ontological person, like of less worth or value. He's not saying that whatsoever. He's saying there's different edification values to the different gifts that are in the church, and prophecy is, is one of those superior ones. Now, although he says it'd be great if you all prophesied, we have to hold that in contrast or in tension, I'll say, with James chapter 3 and verse 1. Remember what that verse says? My brethren, be not many teachers. Why? Because teachers of the Bible will receive the stricter judgment. That's my unfortunate portion in this church. I say unfortunate because I'm supposed to follow everything that I teach just so. And I want to, but I don't always accomplish that. So you pray for me as I pray for you to follow the word of the living God. But this requires God's gifting to do this. So not everybody's gifted to to be the teacher, uh, to be a teacher of the word. All right, so the matter of understanding, very important. The matter of the outflow of the benefit of gifts, very important. The the matter of, of being equipped to understand. You know, you have to be able to, you have to be saved, you have to live, be living in holiness, be concerned for sin in order to really grow in understanding of the Word of God. And as I said before, if you don't understand, ask. That's why we have Q&A sessions from time to time, and I invite you to do that so that you are not merely, you know, coming to check the box, no edification, you know, it's just a religious ritual. Probably the worst kind of example of this is any church or I'll say religious function in which people go to the church or the mosque or the cathedral or whatever, and the service is in a foreign language, Latin, for example, or Arabic. If you don't understand those languages, it cannot do anything for you. It's just merely an empty religious ritual. So what we want is we want understanding. That's why we worked on, you know, sound system, on uh, stuff to reduce the echo in the room, you know, why I try to be in my office and understand, really understand the text because I've experienced when there's a fog here, it, you know, the foghorn is blowing out there. You know, you just can't understand it if you can't get a good, clear explanation of it. So that's what we're go- our goal is, 
in terms of proclamation of the truth. Join me in prayer, please. Father, thank you that we were able to spend a few moments together in the Word this morning. We ask that you would kindly grant us a rich understanding of your Word, not just in these five verses, but also just generally as we read it and touch it, as we, as we think about it, as we pray over it, as we share it with other people. And we give you thanks for this. Lord, we pray too that our exercise of gifts will focus on the outflow of the benefits to edify and comfort and exhort the church and not on the inflow of of reputation or puffing ourselves up. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.